We return to the book of Ezekiel again this morning and chapter 44. Ezekiel 44 is on page 875. And we'll read the entire chapter. Ezekiel 44 and verse 1. You can see the subtitle there is The Gate for the Prince. So Ezekiel 44 and verse 1. Then he brought me back by the way of the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces the east, and it was shut. The Lord said to me, This gate shall be shut. It shall not be opened, and no one shall enter by it. For the Lord God of Israel has entered by it, therefore it shall be shut. As for the prince, he shall sit in it as prince to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by way of the porch of the gate, and he shall go out by the same way. Then he brought me by way of the north gate to the front of the house. And I looked, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord, and I fell on my face. The Lord said to me, Son of man, mark well, see with your eyes and hear with your ears all that I say to you concerning all the statutes of the house of the Lord and concerning all its laws and mark well the entrance of the house with all exits of the sanctuary. You shall say to the rebellious ones, to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Enough of all your abominations, O house of Israel. When you brought in foreigners, uncircumcised in heart, and uncircumcised in flesh to be in my sanctuary, to profane it, even my house, when you offered my food, the fat and the blood. For they made my covenant void, this in addition to all your abominations. And you have not kept charge of my holy things yourselves, but you have set foreigners to keep charge of my sanctuary. Thus says the Lord God, No foreigner uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh of all the foreigners who are among the sons of Israel shall enter my sanctuary. But the Levites who went far from me when Israel went astray, who went astray from me after their idols, shall bear the punishment for their iniquity. Yet they shall be ministers in my sanctuary, having oversight at the gates of the house and ministering in the house. They shall slaughter the burnt offering and the sacrifice for the people. And they shall stand before them to minister to them. Because they ministered to them before their idols and became a stumbling block of iniquity to the house of Israel. Therefore I have sworn against them, declares the Lord God, that they shall bear the punishment for their iniquity. And they shall not come near to me to serve as a priest to me, nor come near to any of my holy things, to the things that are most holy. But they will bear their shame and their abominations which they have committed. Yet I will appoint them to keep charge of the house, of all its service, and of all that shall be done in it. But the Levitical priests, the sons of Zadok, who kept charge of my sanctuary when the sons of Israel went astray from me, shall come near to me to minister to me, and they shall stand before me to offer the fat and the blood, declares the Lord God. They shall enter my sanctuary, they shall come near to my table to minister to me, and keep my charge. It shall be that when they enter at the gates of the inner court, they shall be clothed with linen garments. 
And wool shall not be on them while they are ministering in the gates of the inner court and in the house. Linen turbans shall be on their heads, and linen undergarments shall be on their loins. They shall not gird themselves with anything which makes them sweat. And when they go out into the outer court, into the outer court to the people, they shall put off their garments in which they have been ministering, and lay them in the holy chambers. Then they shall put on other garments, so that they will not transmit holiness to the people with their garments. Also they shall not shave their heads. Yet they shall not let their locks grow long. They shall only trim the hair of their heads. Nor shall any of the priests drink wine when they enter the inner court. And they shall not marry a widow or a divorced woman, but shall take virgins from the offspring of the house of Israel, or a widow who is the widow of a priest. Moreover, they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the profane, and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. In a dispute they shall take their stand to judge. They shall judge it according to my ordinances. They shall also keep my laws and my statutes in all my appointed feasts, and sanctify my Sabbaths. They shall not go to a dead person to defile themselves. However, for father, for mother, for son, for daughter, for brother, or for a sister who has not had a husband, they may defile themselves. After he is cleansed, seven days shall elapse for him. On the day that he goes into the sanctuary, into the inner court to minister in the sanctuary, he shall offer his sin offering, declares the Lord God. And it shall be with regard to an inheritance for them, that I am their inheritance. And you shall give them no possession in Israel. I am their possession. They shall eat the grain offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. And every devoted thing in Israel shall be theirs. The fruit of all the firstfruits of every kind, and every contribution of every kind from all your contributions shall be for the priests. You shall also give to the priest the first of your dough to cause a blessing to rest on your house. The priest shall not eat any bird or beast that has died a natural death or has been torn to pieces. Well, congregation, again we continue by gleaning lessons from the book of Ezekiel. It would seem like an unlikely source to find lessons for the church today in the book of Ezekiel, but I trust that you've seen all what Ezekiel can teach us in our own time, in our own day. We saw at the very beginning of Ezekiel the call that God placed upon him and the the call that God places upon all his people to follow him and to speak his word. We saw the glory cloud, and we're going to see that again also this morning. But we saw the glory cloud leaving the temple. And then we saw the glory cloud returning to it again. The glory cloud being a representation of God's presence himself. We saw false prophets. Prophets who did not speak the word from God. We saw false shepherds. Civil rulers who, who were doing their best to fleece the people, as we would say. And not to protect them and to encourage them. At the close of this book, from chapters 40 to the end, you'll remember that Ezekiel has this vision, that God gives him this vision of this glorious temple. And we've already looked at that, because you'll remember that we considered that healing river. Remember that river that flows from the inner sanctuary of the temple, that started as just a trickle, 
and it flowed out of that temple and it had healing properties that as it went, the ground became verdant and, and, and plants began to grow, trees began to grow and to bear fruit. So we saw this temple, we saw the river flowing from it. Now last time, we considered the subject of church unity. Church unity, that God takes, uh, tells Ezekiel to take the two sticks and every child here, no matter how young, can see that picture, right? Of those two sticks coming together and representing the union of the ten tribes in the north and the two tribes in the south. Such God wanted to represent to his people the union in his own church of Jew and Gentile. We considered that last week. But now, uh, this morning, we have the privilege of returning again to that glorious temple that God gave uh, to Ezekiel to see. And we want to see that temple this morning, and especially con to consider uh, under the subject, the title of the sermon, Who May Enter God's Temple? Who has the right to enter that temple? That is the title of the sermon this morning. And so let's look then at this text, congregation, Ezekiel chapter 44. If you would take your Bible and open there uh, with me, you can see what's happening in Ezekiel 44. Because you see that Ezekiel's guide, remember there is this man, probably an angel of some kind, who is leading Ezekiel in a vision to see all the different aspects of the temple. He takes him inside. He takes him outside. But you remember, if you turn back to chapter 43, and you look at the subheading, again, the subheadings in these Bibles are, are helpful. In chapter 43, you can see what, what took place in chapter 43. That was the vision of the glory of God filling the temple. Now, we had a sermon on that some time ago. Remember that the glory cloud had left the temple. But now Ezekiel sees in vision that the glory cloud returns. And just one thing to point out there to you, in chapter 43, verse 1, it says, Then he, that is this guide, led me to the gate, the gate facing toward the east. Now, do you remember, congregation, what gate faced east? Remember the, the, the temple, the tabernacle, Solomon's temple, Herod's temple, they all faced east, right? They all faced toward the Jordan River. That's east. So that's the front of the temple. And the glory cloud comes down, comes in, and in verse 4, and now, again, I'm in chapter 43 now, Chapter 43 and verse 4, And the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate facing toward the east. So, to use our language, the glory cloud of God came and entered by way of the front door of this temple. It came in that front door. So when we turn to chapter 44 now, and in verse 1, we find, Then he brought me back by the way of the outer gate of the sanctuary which faces the east. Do you see that now? It's as if Ezekiel comes around and he sees the front of the temple. And he looks and that door is shut tight. It's shut tight. And it was shut. The Lord said to me, this gate shall be shut. It shall not be opened. And no one shall enter by it. For the Lord God of Israel has entered by it. Therefore it shall be shut. So again, Isaiah, or Ezekiel is referring back to the glory cloud of God, which had entered through that east gate. But when the glory cloud of God entered through that east gate, 
it's as if that gate was now rendered so holy and it was, it was sanctified by the glory of God that it is now shut. And no one is allowed to enter. No one is allowed to enter that gate. Now there is one exception. In verse 3 you read that. As for the prince, he shall sit in it as prince to eat bread before the Lord. And the it here is that east gate, that east gate entrance. So we could read in verse 3, As for the prince, he shall sit in the east gate, in that doorway, as prince to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by way of the porch of the gate and shall go out by the same way. Now who is this prince? Now when we read about that prince, this is very, uh, this actually has caused people considerable uh, work you might say, to try to figure out who this prince is, immediately we might be initially led to believe that this must be the Messiah. Because who else would be qualified to come in that east gate where the glory cloud of God had already entered? So we would think of of, of the prince as the Messiah. However, in another section of Ezekiel, we find that this prince offers sacrifices. Now already we would not expect the Messiah to offer sacrifices. However, it goes on in, in, a, in, a, in one of the following chapters, and it says that the prince will offer sacrifices. He will offer a sin offering for the people and for himself. And for himself. Now, that's impossible, right? That, that can be the Messiah then. That the Messiah would, off, would have to offer a, a sin offering for himself. And so we come back to this prince then, and we think, well, who can this be? And, and it appears then that this prince is is an administrator, you might say, in God's kingdom, in God's temple. And an administrator who enjoys the closest possible fellowship with God because only he is allowed to sit in that east gate. No one else is allowed to come through that gate. But the prince is allowed to. The prince is allowed to enter and to sit in that east gate and to eat bread with God. Now, not a lot else is said about this prince. He's kind of a mysterious figure, actually in the book of Ezekiel. Um, and you should know, by the way, that some, some Bible expositors continue to assert that the prince is the Messiah. Uh, but most, uh, most Bible uh, students have, have, have said that it's impossible because you can't, they can't understand how the prince could offer a sin offering for himself then, as it says later on in the book. So the prince, a bit of a mysterious figure, and yet a, a person who's highly favored to enter into that east gateway. Now, we uh, continue then in verse 4, where it says, Then he brought me by way of the north gate to the front of the house. Now here, congregation, I, I hate to do this, but I have to quibble with that, with that translation. Because the front of the house is the, house that fa- is the, is the east facing. The east gate was the front of the house. So I, I don't like that it says the front of the house. It, 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 I think it should be translated just, Then he brought me by way of the north gate uh, before the house. In other words, in front of the house. Ezekiel is not in, in, the, in the... He's not standing in front of the front door, right? That would be facing east. But he can't go in the east gate. That's too holy. So now the, his guide brings him around to the north gate, which would have been the side of the house. And he's standing in front, okay, in front of that gate, not in the front of the house, but before that gate. And I looked. So here he is. He, he looks inside the gate there. That gate is open. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord, and I fell on my face. Again, this is always the response of the prophet. 
that when he sees the glory of God, he falls on his face. And then God speaks to him. And now this is that, that point in the uh, point number one there, the entrances and exits. Because notice the focus, the focus of God's word is to bring his servant to focus, to look at these entrances and exits. Now we've already seen that, right? Because already we've been brought to that east gate and seen how it is shut. Now, notice that it says in verse 5, The Lord said to me, Son of man, mark well, see with your eyes and hear with your ears all that I say to you concerning all the statutes of the house of the Lord, concerning all its laws. And now here, And mark well the entrance of the house with all exits of the sanctuary. You shall say to the rebellious ones, to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Enough of all your abominations, O house of Israel, when you brought in foreigners, uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh, to be in my sanctuary, to profane it, even my house when you offered my food, the fat and the blood, for they made my covenant void. This, in addition to all your abominations. So God, through his prophet Ezekiel, is rebuking the Jewish people for allowing foreigners into the temple. Now that's a very interesting way of referring to the Jewish people. Because you know the Jewish people never let foreigners in the temple. Literal foreigners. Actual Gentiles. It was unthinkable for them to let a foreigner into the temple. So here, God is referring to his own people, the Jewish people. He's referring to them as foreigners. Imagine how offensive that must have been. How, how the Jewish people must have been uh, galled to hear God refer to them as foreigners. And then he goes on. He says, you've let uncircumcised people, uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh. Well, the Jews were circumcised in the flesh, for sure. But now God says, no, you're not uncircumcised in heart. You're not even uncircumcised in your flesh. And you've allowed such people to come into my sanctuary to profane it. God is referring to his own people as foreigners and as uncircumcised ones. Remember later uh, in the book of Ezekiel, God says, an Amorite was your father and a Hittite was your mother. Now again, that's not literally the case, right? The Jews had Jewish parents, of course, but God is saying, you are so wicked and so unfaithful, that you're no better than having an Amorite father and a Hittite for your mother. And now we see the same kind of language here in verse 7, that the the Levites, the priests, the people who were in charge of the temple had allowed foreigners, not literal foreigners, but you might say moral foreigners, right? People who who were Gentiles, uncircumcised in heart. You've let them come into my sanctuary to profane it. And you see that later in verse 7 where it says, when you offered my food, the fat and the blood. Again, that that shows that these were not Gentiles. No no Gentile would ever have offered a sacrifice to God. He He wasn't even familiar with the Jewish law. These are Jews who are bringing the fat and the blood. And remember, it was especially the peace offering, right? Where the animal was killed and then the choice parts of the animal, the fat and and the blood were taken out and were placed on the altar. And that was God's portion. That was then burned and offered up to God as God's portion of the sacrifice. And then you remember the priest and the people who brought the sacrifice would sit and eat that sacrifice together. And God says, you've done that, and you've done it as foreigners. You've done it as uncircumcised in heart, 
and uncircumcised in flesh. And God rebukes them severely for that. Well, congregation, let's, let's hasten on then to the second point and consider then what is this temple? Now, we've talked about this already, that when Ezekiel is talking about this temple at the end of his prophecy, he is talking about the house of God. He is talking about the kingdom of God, his church, as it will come to be in the New Testament times. That when the king is born, the Lord Jesus Christ, on Christmas Day, and he enters into his ministry, he begins to preach the kingdom of God. And that kingdom is his church. Now, let me just make that clear to you with a few verses here. But we read in Hebrews chapter 3, in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 3, where we read, For he, and here it's talking about Jesus, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house. And then it says, Whose house are we? Let me read that again. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house. So the author here is talking about Moses being faithful in his house. But now God is fa- Jesus is faithful in his house. And the author of Hebrews says that Christ was faithful as a son over his house. Whose house are we? In other words, the church of God is the church of God is the temple, is the house of God. You can think also of 1 Timothy 3 and verse 15. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So you see that in the New Testament times, and again, this takes us back also to what we talked about last week, that the New Testament teaches us how to understand the Old Testament. And now this glorious temple of Ezekiel is not some literal temple that's going to be built in the end times, as so many teach today. But the New Testament teaches us to understand the house of God, the temple of God, as his church, his body, whose house are we. And I included that verse there from Philippians 3, where Paul even uses the picture of circumcision. He says, For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God, and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. So the, the, the true circumcision is all those who are circumcised in the flesh? No, says Paul. In fact, uh, in another part, Paul will say circumcision is nothing. We, Jew or Gentile, circumcised in the flesh or uncircumcised in the flesh, we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in in Christ Jesus. So that is what is meant by God's house. And that brings us then to the question, uh, dear congregation, of how now we can take these, this prophecy of Ezekiel, and if we are the house of God, then we have much to learn from what Ezekiel teaches us here in these, in these verses. And especially uh, to the leadership of the church, as they consider who may enter God's temple. In other words, the question... What are the terms of membership in the Christian church? Now, congregation, let me be very clear that who may enter into God's house, of course, everybody is welcome through that door. Right? We want every publican and every sinner, every Pharisee and everybody in between to come through that door. Whatever they may have sinned, whatever they may have done in their life, we welcome them into this church and we minister to them word 
and deed and, and everything that we can do to help them to understand the gospel. That's not what we're talking about this morning. Right? Ezekiel's not saying, don't let anybody in the church except someone who is circumcised in heart. No. Everybody is allowed in the church. Of course, we long that they would come in and to sit under the ministry of the gospel. But now we're talking about the terms of membership in the Christian church. What it means to be a member of the church of Christ. And now, of course, the terms of membership are given us very clearly in Ezekiel here. That a person to be a member of Christ's church must not be a foreigner, right? And understood in a spiritual sense, but he must be circumcised in heart. In other words, in the words of theology, they need to be a regenerate person. They need to be a person whose heart has been made new by the Spirit of God. Circumcised hearts. Circumcised in flesh. And what does that mean then in our time? Well, we understand under the New Covenant that that is baptism. So people who come to this church and who desire to join this church and to be members will be asked those two questions. Not in those terms, right? Those are Old Covenant terms. But in the New Covenant, are you a believer in Christ? Are you a regenerate person? And have you been baptized? Those are the things that are necessary to become a member. Those are the terms of membership in this church. And why do we do that? Because Louis Burkhoff taught us that? Or Herman Bovink? Or Luther? No congregation. Ezekiel. It's in the word of God. Circumcised in heart and circumcised in flesh. But now we come to a question, don't we? Because in Ezekiel's temple, God himself will see to it, right? Ezekiel's temple is that end time temple. And after the second coming of Christ, when that temple is, is in all its perfection, God will see to it that only those who are circumcised in heart will enter. But what about our temple? And by that I mean, what about this church? What about the Covenant United Reformed Church? What do we do when people come in? How can I possibly look into the heart of a person and see that his heart is circumcised? That he has a new heart from the Spirit of God, that he's regenerate? You see the question here? This is the dilemma. It's very easy to see how Ezekiel's temple could fulfill these prescriptions, right? That only the circumcised in heart may enter. But what does our council do? What do our elders do? We can't see into the hearts of anyone. How are we to know who is circumcised in heart? Well, again, it's not clear from Ezekiel, right, how we're to answer that question. But thank God we have the New Testament, right? And we turn there for light on this question of how can we know who we are to admit into our temple? And so that brings me then to my fourth point there, the difficult question, who is to be allowed into God's temple? Who is to be allowed to be a member of the Christian church? And you should know, congregation, that this has been a matter of considerable controversy in the Christian church. Let me just make you aware of one thing. In the New England churches, back in the, in the 1740s, uh, or, uh, you know, if, right from the time when the first colony was set up there in Massachusetts Bay, uh, on, until about uh, later, into the 1800s, the Puritan fathers there... Uh, had a, a vigorous controversy about over this question. And why was that? Well, because the Puritan fathers and, and dear friends, of course we respect these men very highly, right? Even though we may disagree with them on some points, as I'm going to make clear to you now, we respect them very highly. But the Puritan fathers of those days, 
that they began to, to admit into the membership of the church only those who could give satisfactory evidence of their being regenerate, of their having a regenerate heart. And how did they do that? Well, they began to inquire. They began to pry. They began to ask leading questions. They asked the person to give a testimony of how God had brought them to faith. And as this went on, perhaps it started rather innocently, but as it developed, and by the way, I'm told that the same thing happened in the Netherlands. Uh, I'm not, uh, I cannot read Dutch, so I, I, I can't read that material. But the material in English in, uh, in the United States is all in English, of course. But you can read how they began to ask, you know, did the Lord convict you of your sins? How did that go in your life? What happened? Did the Lord deliver you? Did the Lord give you a revelation of Jesus Christ as the only Savior from your sin? How did that go? And they began to ask for a story. And initially, they would only allow people into the membership of the church who satisfied them that they had a regenerate heart. But over time, fewer and fewer people who had grown up in the church could claim to have had these kinds of experiences that the original Puritans asked for and required in order to be a member of the church. So they had the very awkward and uncomfortable situation of people growing up into the church, young people growing older, getting married, having children, who gave every evidence of being, uh, you know, of, of wanting to be a, a Christian person, and yet because of the of lack of these experiences in their life, they did not see themselves to be regenerate. You might say they saw themselves as, as being kind of adherents to the Christian religion, but they didn't understand themselves to be saved. They didn't see themselves to have their sins forgiven. And they would not claim to be regenerate persons. Now what's to be done with these people? And these churches wrestled hard with this issue. They wrestled very hard with this issue because on the one hand, as these couples came together and had children and wanted to bring their children for baptism, well, if you're not a member of the church, you cannot, be, you cannot have your children baptized. So now you have this even more awkward situation of children growing older in the church, unbaptized. Now, some of these churches reacted very poorly to this, and they actually, they actually set up what they called a halfway covenant. And this is what they meant by the halfway covenant. What they meant was that you could join the church, but you could join the church just professing to be an adherent to the Christian religion. They say, I believe everything that the Bible teaches, I want to be in the church regularly. I want to have my children baptized. I want to raise them in this environment. But I, I cannot claim for myself that I am myself a regenerate person, that I am a Christian. And so in a synod that took place in New England in the 1700s, they made this, they made it available that, that these kinds of people could join the church. And only later it was called a halfway covenant because these people were seen as kind of Halfway in. Now, that's a, that's a terrible idea, isn't it? It's a, it's a terrible, terrible thought. But the question that was being uh, argued and discussed and debated at the time was, what are the terms upon which a person can be admitted into Christian membership? Now, you should know that there were some Puritans that reacted against this. The celebrated Jonathan Edwards, right? You all will remember that name. Was actually removed let me say it frankly, he was kicked out of his church because he refused to accept this idea of a halfway covenant. He refused to allow people to become members of the church 
who did not claim to be or profess to be believers in Christ and true Christians. And he was actually removed. Imagine that, Jonathan Edwards, of all people, removed from his church because he, would, he refused to compromise on that point. Now, we, as, as, as Reformed people, look on that controversy uh, with some uh, alarm, don't we? Because, first of all, we would, we would never uh, accept for a minute this idea of a halfway covenant, that somebody could be admitted into the church just by agreeing to believe everything that the Bible teaches and Yes, I want my children to grow up in a Christian environment and so forth, right? We reject that. But the real problem here, dear congregation, is the, the, their understanding of the terms of the membership of a Christian church. And that's what leads me to this fifth point on my outline there, the Bible's answer. And the Bible gives us this answer in the parable of the weeds and the wheat, and I would like you to turn there with me if you could, because this is critical for our understanding of this, this difficult question of who may enter God's temple. And Jesus gives us very clear teaching here when he talks about the parable of the weeds and the wheat. Now I'm turning to Matthew 13. Matthew chapter 13, where you see these parables that Jesus is teaching. And in verse 24 you have the beginning of this parable called the tares or the weeds among the wheat. In verse 24, you read, Jesus presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared. And then he talks about this man who had a field of wheat. And while they were sleeping, the enemy came and, and sowed weeds amongst it. And Jesus then explains that parable. That, uh, and you can see, actually, you have the parable of the mustard seed in verse 31, then the parable of 11 in verse 33. But then in verse 36, he returns to the parable of the tares and he explains what it means. But for our purposes, please look at verse 28. Uh, verse 27. So Matthew 13 and verse 27. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? In other words, they're asking, Shall we go out into the wheat field? And shall we weed out all the, all the weeds? And the response is, But he said, No. For while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. And especially, congregation, the particular tares that are, are mentioned here is called darnel. And it was known that the, the roots of these weeds would intertwine all through the field. And so it was almost impossible to pull out the weed without pulling out a bunch of wheat too because the roots would all intertwine with each other. And it was very difficult to get them apart. And then here we have the instruction in verse 30. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up and gather the wheat into my barn. Here, congregation, then we have the explicit teaching of Jesus that the elders of the church are to receive all into membership of the church who profess faith in Christ. Now, they may have a suspicion in their minds that this particular person is not a true Christian. He, he's not regenerate. But Jesus explicitly forbids even the attempt to try to discern which of these, if there's five people here, they all want to join the church. 
Jesus says you may not make an attempt to discern which of those are truly regenerate persons. You have to, they have to make a profession of faith. In other words, they have to be, to use the Old Testament language, they have to be circumcised in the flesh. They have to make this profession that we can hear, right? And that we can understand. But we are explicitly forbidden as the leadership of the church to try and to discern which ones are truly regenerate and which ones are not. And in this sense, our Puritan forefathers, for all the respect that we had for them, went too far. Many of them, not all of them, many of them went too far. And they began to inquire. They wanted to know, is, is, is he really a Christian? Yes, he says he believes in Christ. Now, of course, congregation, the elders have to make sure that a person knows what they're saying when they say believe in Christ and when they, what, what are they saved from. There has to be a certain amount of understanding there, right? So elders are going to ask some questions, right? But elders do not ask questions in the sense of trying to discern, are you really a regenerate person? Have you really... And by the way, this is what happened to me in my own time. And by the way, I can say it, that in the Netherlands Reformed Church, which we all know uh, and respect, uh, this is the situation that continues today. That you have uh, a great deal of people who are members of the church, but do not see themselves as Christians and as saved people. And in my own experience, when I, made my, uh, when I went to the Lord's Supper for the first time, uh, which I mean, even that is a bit odd for us, right? That a person would be a member of a church, but not use the Lord's Supper. But that's, that's how I was raised. And, uh, and then the elders called me in and asked me to come for an interview. And, uh, and that's very much how that interview went. I don't have any problem with the interview, by the way. That's, that's certainly appropriate. But when the interview is specifically targeted to try to discern, are, are you really a Christian? Did you, was your experience of faith really genuine? Was it really true? Now that, Jesus says, no. The profession of faith comes and the elders receive it. And Jesus says, you are not allowed to even attempt to discern which of those people coming to join the church are really regenerate and which are not. You know, and many times, our Baptist brothers and sisters also will insist on a regenerate church membership. Perhaps you've heard that, that the, the membership of the church be regenerate. And in one sense, that sounds very consistent with what we read in Ezekiel 44. And as Reformed people, we would say, yes, certainly we do want a regenerate church membership. But again, we, we stand on the words of Jesus that we are not to discern and even attempt to discern what the state of that person's heart really is. Let me read to you a quote. This is a quote from Roland McCune, who's a very good Baptist theologian, by the way, an excellent theologian, but he writes this, with which I must disagree. He says, the local church must have evidence of the candidate's personal experience of salvation. The would-be member must give a credible witness to the transformation of heart that is necessary to join a local assembly. This is normally done by a verbal testimony, and there are different ways for the local church to obtain this. Roland McCune. And again, congregation, uh, my dear brother, I would have to say, but what about Jesus' teaching? in the parable of the weeds and the wheat. And that's where I think a, a, that, that, that sense that we want, to, we want to go farther, we want to go beyond the person's profession of faith. We want to, as it were, peer into their heart. And Jesus says, no. The weeds and the wheat are to be allowed to grow together until the day comes when God will make a difference. God will make a separation. Now in our own church, 
In our own theology, even the children learn, right, the distinction between the visible church and the invisible church. Our own confessions don't have this distinction so clearly. I took this from the Westminster Larger Catechism. But notice the difference in language. It says, what is the visible church? The visible church is a society made up of all such as in all ages and places of the world do profess the true religion and of their children. Now, do you see that language? They profess the true religion. But then the invisible church, now notice how it changes. The invisible church is the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ the head. And that's why we have that distinction. That distinction is not given us in the Bible, at least in so many words. We have that distinction to protect this teaching of Jesus. That yes, the church membership are to be regenerate. But that is a matter between you and God. The elders of the church receive your profession of faith and accept that without any attempt to get behind it and to see what really might be the case. Well, congregation, I leave it there then and, uh, and pray that the, the teaching of Ezekiel alongside of Jesus teaching in the weeds and the wheat would be the doctrine that we practice and profess here in this church. But in closing, congregation, just a personal reflection because you know we talked a lot about the elders of the church today and what they're to accept. But congregation, for you as an individual, you can look into your own heart. You know what is in your heart. And so by way of closing application, congregation, I ask you this morning, are you a living member of Christ's church? There are good fish and bad fish in the net of the kingdom of God. There are weeds and there are wheat in the field of God. And our own Heidelberg Catechism teaches us in question and answer 54 about the church. It says, and of this community I am and always will be a living member. And so there's a matter for personal reflection, congregation. I can't look into your heart. I can't see in the church today who's part of the invisible church. But you can. You can look into your own soul and you can know that you have taken refuge in Jesus Christ as your only Savior and that you have hope in no other. And I press that on you this morning, dear congregation. By way of self-examination. Dear friends, are you a Christian this morning? Are you a Christian? Are you circumcised in heart? I can't answer that for you. You can't answer it for me. But I ask you to look within the deepest recesses of your own heart and to answer before God and before your own conscience. I believe in Jesus Christ and I have hope in no other. Such may enter the doors of this church and become members of the church to God's glory. May God grant that for you, congregation, and for me, and for our children. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God and merciful Father, we've considered this morning a matter of some controversy in your church. But Lord, I pray that uh, we might take the teaching of Ezekiel and the teaching of Jesus in the parable of the weeds and the wheat, and that we would put these two together and that we would diligently practice this truth. Lord, give great wisdom to the elders of this body. They have a task, Lord, that is very difficult. 
to, to walk that line between requiring too much and requiring too little. But Lord, I pray for each individual here that you would make them to be honest with themselves and to inquire, to ask, am I a living member of Christ's body? Oh God, this is the time for us to make that discovery. One day it will be too late. Lord, I pray that you would give us that honesty then and the light of your spirit that each one of us might take our stand on the promise of God and say, I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and I believe in my heart that God hath raised him from the dead for my salvation. Lord, will you give us that good confession to make before our own conscience and before all the church of God. A confession, Lord, which one day we will make before that glorious temple which Ezekiel was given to see. And the door of that temple will swing open and we will be allowed to enter. Lord, may there be none here, not one, Lord, who would fail to enter that glorious building, that glorious house. Hear our prayer, Lord. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.